Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Ultrasound Gel Podcast. I'm Mike Pratz and this is part two of our special edition on regional anesthesia with none other than the Mike Stone. So if you missed last episode, let me catch you up to speed. We are going through head to toe every type of ultrasound guided regional anesthesia we could find papers on and discussing the level of evidence. In the last episode, we covered an introduction to regional anesthesia briefly, and we did down to the brachial plexus blocks. Now we're going to continue on with the upper extremity and go all the way down to the toes. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy. Now, Mike, you just mentioned axillary, which working our way down is next on the list here. So what can you tell us about the axillary? nerve block. You're basically doing an axillary approach to the brachial plexus. Um, you actually c- can do like a targeted axillary nerve block, which we could cover some other day because there's zero evidence about that. We just covered it right now. Yeah, there you go. It's covered. Um, it's useful for deltoid abscesses uh, if you want. The axillary approach to the brachial plexus block gets you basically elbow down. Um, and um, so great for distal radius fractures. Um, probably the, the main thing that I'm using it for at this point. And you have so many options with the distal radius, whether you want to do a beer block, which seems to be a relatively uh, um, ancient technique at this point. We did some of them when I was in residency, but I haven't seen one done in years. Um, for listeners who aren't familiar, you put an IV in the in the hand distal to the uh, injury, you pump up a double blood pressure cuff, a pneumatic cuff, and you inject intravenous lidocaine um, without epinephrine. And um, and the arm goes numb, and then you slowly let the cuff down so that you don't flood patients with lidocaine into their into their uh, circulatory system. Um, it works amazingly well, but it, there's a lot of gear involved and, and a level of comfort that a lot of folks don't have. Um, and then hematoma blocks are probably still my my go-to for um, most distal radius fractures. But if somebody's they don't work terribly well in the elderly, um, they don't work terribly well in in younger patients, and if you're not doing procedures sedation for it, um, an axillary block is a great rescue or alternative approach. So, you know, these work well blind. Um, you know, the traditional approach is to go trans arterial, um, and to just go th- like, you know, out of plane approach, feel the ax- the, the pulse of the, uh, the axillary artery and just go straight through it to the other side and inject. Um, I prefer to do this with an ultrasound guided approach where I'm going posterior or deep to the artery, but not through it. Um, just seems unnecessary with ultrasound. And if you, if you do the traditional approach, I remember that it's actually harder to get the muscular cutaneous branch in that point. So you will miss some of that innervation if you're just going around the artery. Absolutely true. Although the, um, you know, in, in the days of old, uh, you know, flooding like 30 mLs into that compartment, <laughs> um, it works pretty well for still getting the musculocutaneous. You use quantity to overwhelm your lack of accuracy. Which, which was, which was really the, the, the sort of, uh, mainstay of these landmark approaches. And if you look at our anesthesiology colleagues, they're often still using much higher volumes than we are because of a holdover from those days. So Yes, volume will help your sloppiness in terms of, uh, of needle placement. Um, so uh, it, it, I, I don't think you need that much. Um, and you can, as you're, as you're quite aware, you can uh, do a focused injection of the 
musculocutaneous nerve on the way out after you've gotten your your sort of um, brachial plexus around the artery. Now, regarding the evidence here, there actually was a study comparing the beer block to an axillary nerve block, and this was from the late 90s, not super recent, but it showed that there was a higher satisfaction with the axillary nerve block, but overall they had worse pain. Uh, The study authors concluded that it was at least well tolerated and could be an option if you can't do a beer block. So, and that was, I think, an N of 75. So that's better than a lot of the other evidence we have. But there's been more recently cases just showing that this can be used in the emergency department or other places. All right, forearm blocks. We're going to lump all those together as well because you can hit the radial, the ulnar, median for all sorts of different things. What do we need to know about that, Mike? High yield way to get the hand numb. If it's just a hand injury, um, this is, I, I think, a go-to way to do it. Um, you're blocking the nerves in the mid forearm. It's analogous to doing an anatomic wrist block of the median, radial, and ulnar nerves, except it's more comfortable for patients, and I think, in my experience, it works better. Don't be fooled into thinking that you're blocking the forearm so you get some anesthesia of the forearm. Um, the cutaneous innervation of the forearm comes off earlier, so you're, you're really just getting the hand. And you'll miss that little triangle between your thenar and hypothenar eminence um, on the hand with with get even if you do all three because that's musculocutaneous nerve distribution so don't be bummed you know if you get a big thenar eminence laceration this is a great doing a median nerve block i would do radial two just for overlap um will get you great anesthesia but if you miss that little proximal end into that triangle that's not your block that's just because it's musculocutaneous super high yield i use ulnar blocks in the forearm for boxers fractures that need reduction or are just really uncomfortable and uh, median blocks for typically lacerations and a great entry block i mean it's analogous to doing a an anatomic block at the wrist so you're you're not you know there's no significant increased risk with anything in fact you're probably decreasing risk by not injecting a bunch of anesthetic into the carpal tunnel um, when you're doing the median approach and a lot of the studies have centered around pain control for hand conditions whether they be fractures or lacerations or injuries and there's actually a few good studies on this Uh, using this in the emergency department. And most of these studies, they just go ahead and block all three of those regardless of where the injury is because I guess there can be some overlap and they just wanted to make sure they had adequate coverage of all of these patients. And both in pediatrics and in adults, this not only seems feasible, but it does seem to have good analgesic control for these. Although there was no control groups to say it's better than anything else that you do. Regarding using it for fractures, like you've mentioned, those that's mostly just case reports at this point. Absolutely. I, I would give one shout out to um, Appa Sahoni, whose fellow project, and granted I'm biased because I'm on that project, um, was to randomize people to either a sham block with uh, saline or a real block with anesthesia. Um, basically, subjects who were volunteers, aka residents, had um, had their um, forearm nerve blocked and their wrist blocked on the same side, um, one with saline and one with anesthesia. They were blinded. Uh, observers were blinded. Um, the uh, operators were blinded. And they did both sides and kind of didn't know which side was real forearm and which side was real wrist. Um, and uh, I, I won't spoil the results, but uh, but cool study. And, and with, I mean, at least a very sort of like a bench research design of a control group and some good blinding. 
One time I had uh, allowed one of my fellows to practice a forearm nerve block on me just with like some saline and practice getting there. And it, it was quite frightening, I have to admit. I've got some some pretty choice footage maybe we can supplement of uh, some of the the great leaders in emergency ultrasound with their hands numb. <laughs> well, the next one that we have, we're going to now go back up to the thorax, the torso here. And we're going to talk about the PEC-1 and PEX 2 block. What are those about, Mike? Um, PEX-1 and PEX-2 are sort of in a family of plane blocks that are, um, you know, we've seen a number of these blocks kind of pop up in the last 5, 10 years that are new blocks that were never previously published that are entirely the result of ultrasound guidance. Um, so the ability to see these fascial planes and put anesthetic between these planes where these tiny nerves run them, where you may not even see the actual nerves. Um, PEX-1 and PEX-2 are really emergingly popular in uh, the anesthesiology literature around things like, um, like breast surgery and thoracotomy pain. Um, for uh, In the ED, breast abscess and axillary abscess um, would probably be the only indications. I think I've done maybe a total of five, three to five PEX blocks um, for big axillary abscesses that I didn't feel like I could um, really get a nice uh, local infiltration control on with some just, you know, multimodal analgesia. So, um, you know, interesting. If you're good with in-plane placement, this is all, uh, they're very clear planes. They're generally superficial. Um, you can use ribs as a backstop, so you're not really worried about getting into pleura. You'll, you'll see some stuff on, inter- I, I'm assuming you found some case reports in the ED literature, but probably not much else. I actually couldn't even find any case reports. I only found on the Highland website, I found like a discussion of a case and with some photos and, and ultrasounds, but couldn't find anything published on this actually. So maybe, uh, hey, if you're doing this, just shoot out a quick case report. Easy publication for somebody. Yep. All right. Now, a perhaps a sister block, the serratus anterior, kind of similar to what you're describing, but this one seems to be a little more popular now. Uh, yeah, I, I think a serratus block is a is a great block to learn. Um, you're basically just you know depositing anesthetic either between latissimus and serratus, or between serratus and rib. Um, and for multiple rib fractures, you know the nice thing about plane blocks is they really spread not only you know between those layers, but also typically kind of cephalad caudad. So you'll get multiple levels of analgesia with a single injection, and um, Super popular block as an alternative for things like a thoracic epidural or paravertebral block for um, for rib fracture control. And, you know, those two are pretty scary for uh, folks who don't do them. And certainly, uh, you know, I'm not dropping epidural catheters into people in the ED. Serratus is a great block. Lots of volume. Um, low concentration is fine. Um, but you really want a lot of volume for these plane blocks. And I have a bunch of anesthesiology colleagues who love doing these for um, for rib fracture control. They'll even drop a catheter in and then just be able to kind of re-bolus people as they need. Yeah. And one thing that I've encountered, I had a case where wasn't getting really good analgesia and I found out it was because most of his fractures were posterior so I think that I looked that up later and it seems like serratus may not be as good for posterior rib fractures in some patients so we'll get down to it but maybe an erector spinae plane block might be better for that indication totally agree as far as evidence here although people are pretty amped about it these days uh, I only found a few cases that are examining this. I do know that there are some studies in the works of looking at sort of a protocolized 
patients getting these blocks for multiple rib fractures. So hopefully more to come on that front. Similarly, intercostal blocks. Now, Mike, I don't know if you know this, but as far as I could find, there was only a single case report published on this. And you, my friend, were the author. Mm. So yeah. congratulations. Well, d- d- uh, d- discard that one immediately. You know, this was this was. I'm 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 uh, dating myself as as a dinosaur, but we um we there really wasn't a description of Serena's anterior, or at least not in our knowledge when we uh when we did that uh, ultrasound guided intercostal block. If you had a targeted individual, you know, if you had one rib that was broken. Um, I think it'd be a great way to go. Uh, it's nice to use guidance just to make sure you're not getting into pleura um, and avoiding the neurovascular bundle. But um, since the advent of uh, of um, serratus and erector spinae, um, I don't really do intercostal blocks anymore. So let's move to erector spinae. Yeah, I do these blocks. These are... Um... You know, when they work, they're kind of like the the ketamine of regional anesthesia. They work for like so many different things, and the results can be pretty dramatic. You're basically going just onto the transverse process of the vertebral column. Uh, the traditional um, approach is right around T5, but you can go higher or lower, and it'll the anesthetic will spread higher or lower depending on where you're going. And you're you're just lifting the erector spinae muscles off of the transverse process. Um, it's a relatively simple block once you've done one or two of them. Um, and even though it can sometimes be a somewhat deep block, um, you're really just bringing a needle tip down onto the transverse process. It's not like there's a whole lot of stuff in the way. And certainly you're not worried about things like pneumothorax or arterial puncture. So it's, it's relatively low risk. Rib fractures, definitely the, the thing that I use this the most for, and it, it does work very well for posterior rib fractures. I've been excited about the concept of it working well for renal colic, and I've had mixed results. Um, I've had a few cases where it's, where it's actually been pretty sweet. And then I've had a few where I either had minimal relief or really transient relief. You know, you've seen, there's a couple of good YouTube videos from Kijin Chin about, um, erector spinae plane blocks and, uh, you know, everything from, you know, occipital neuralgia to low back pain. I mean, literally everything from the head to the toes, thoracotomy pain, abdominal incisions. I mean, from the head to toe, depending on where you do the block, there's apparent some efficacy, but I think as we'll get into the the literature is probably not supportive of that just yet. So is this a good block to do before an ED thoracotomy? Yeah, typically that's step one, right? As you roll the patient, <laughs> drop the block in, wait about 40 minutes for it to work. Yeah. <laughs> sort of like sort of like using ultrasound for a crike. Hold on everybody. Let's take let's take some time here. Well, you, let's get set you up. Gotta boot up first. It's, it hasn't been charged. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, as far as the evidence for this one, there are some case series and then a few scattered reports using this for renal colic or even appendicitis, kind of like you mentioned. It's all over the place, but very promising and exciting. Yeah, it's cool stuff. From here, we're going to jump to suprascapular block. This one, I started doing the blocks for shoulder dislocations, interscaling like we talked about, and then I came across suprascapular, and I get the impression maybe that was what was done previously. Um... And it's a little bit unclear to me when you choose one or the other. So suprascapular block will get you uh, anesthesia to the posterior aspect of the shoulder. Um, I, I think we, we may have um, written up a, a case on getting a good shoulder reduction with a suprascapular block, but it was because the resident was really surprised, as were we, that it worked. Um, the, um, the place where this is 
tremendously useful is uh, adhesive capsulitis and frozen shoulder. And, you know, not a common ED presentation, but, you know, when you see somebody in the ED because their adhesive capsulitis is that painful, those patients are miserable and there's very little you can throw at them that um, that makes a big difference unless you, you really want to give them a, a, a hefty dose of opioid analgesics, which is only going to be temporary anyway. My experience with this in a handful of patients with adhesive capsulitis is you drop a block in and come back to them 10 or 15 minutes later and they're literally like moving their arm and waving at you with it. And like some of the the best, like, you know, highest chance of receiving a hug from a patient, which might be a good or a bad thing depending on the patient. Um, but, uh, (laughs) but people are tremendously relieved with this block. And, um, some of my friends in the, um, in the physiatry and MSK ultrasound space swear by this for adhesive capsulitis. So not just a, um, you know, an ER doc N of five, uh, experience, but it's, it's something that's being used pretty commonly in, in, uh, in physiatry practice as well. I found a study on this that looked at comparing the suprascapular block. It was a study that used uh, suprascapular versus procedural sedation for shoulders, and it was 41 patients did show a reduction in length of stay, but no difference in satisfaction. So similar to the interscaling article. Then there was also a study that showed intraarticular compared to suprascapular block. So intraarticular injection for shoulder dislocation. The suprascapular block came out worse in that case, worse for pain control at least. Then I found this really cool case report where a guy dislocated his shoulder, came in, they did an interscaling block, dislocated his shoulder a second time on a second visit. They came in, they did a suprascapular block this time, and they asked him, which did you like better? And he seemed to like the suprascapular block. So interesting report there. That sounds definitive. (laughs) (laughs) It's one guy, but he speaks for everybody. All right. A few more here. Transversus abdominis. Moving into the belly. Yeah, so so transversus abdominis plane blocks or tap blocks, um, good for abdominal wall uh, issues. Not so, you know you'll you'll see some case reports around uh, postoperative pain and uh, or, or even preoperative pain around uh, around things like appendicitis. Um, in my practice, I use these rarely, but the times that I use them are abdominal wall abscesses that are you know substantial enough that I'm not going to get them comfortable with local. Um, and it's not that uncommon that you get a diabetic with you know some cellulitis and central abscess to the abdominal wall. Um, so you're doing a again, it's a plain block. It's between the internal oblique and the transversus abdominis. We're not going to go into the techniques, but um, large volume dilute anesthetic. Um, it's really an abdominal wall and sort of uh, um, parietal peritoneum, if you will. It's more, it's a, you know, it's not going to get you visceral pain control. My anesthesiology colleagues who are big into regional, most of them for abdominal issues are doing quadratus lumborum blocks. So like either a QL1 or a QL2, um, and they're not really doing tap blocks as much. Um, that said, there's some folks and, and some institutions where you come out of your general anesthesia after your C-section or after your appendectomy, and they'll um, put a couple of tap catheters in, and then they can just bolus you for, uh, for ongoing pain from there. I only was able to find a few cases of it being used for appendicitis. So it's out there, people are using it, but we don't have good support that it's better than anything or even that you know people have been using this successfully 
Now we're going to hit our, our biggest one, our biggest one of the podcast, Mike. Femoral nerve blocks and fascia iliaca compartment blocks. What do we have here? These are blocks that I think every emergency physician should be comfortable doing. Really high yield blocks for pain control. So, you know, there are the occasional indications like a young healthy person with a mid-shaft femur, a distal femur fracture, where you'll um, just completely change their day by, um, by doing regional um, and their need for opioid analgesics and their general discomfort will just be dramatically improved. But most of the literature I'm sure we'll we'll talk about is um, is around elderly patients with uh, with fractured hips and sort of fractured neck of femur if you're from uh, Europe or uh, proximal hip fracture if you're from the U.S. just depending on what you call it. But you know, intertroch femoral neck subtroch fractures. Um, they're, they're, my experience with these blocks is that they don't take a patient from having 10 out of 10 pain to zero out of 10 pain. If you're talking about a proximal hip block, the, um, the proximal hip fracture, excuse me, the, um, the innervation to the proximal hip is pretty complex and it's rare that you get somebody just completely, um, anesthetic with a block, but you take their pain from a, from a, you know, moderate high level down to a low moderate level to the point where something like, a single dose of opioid analgesics and some acetaminophen um, and the block gets them really comfortable in comparison to where they were before the block. I do uh, fascia iliaca compartment blocks in, um, I would say, every one of my elderly patients with a hip fracture, unless you get that true, um, you know, just they're not in any pain at all. Um, and every once in a while you get the very elderly patient who just doesn't seem to, unless you're moving them is really, really comfortable. Um, and it just doesn't seem like it's going to make that big of a difference. But in most of my patients with hip blocks, with hip fractures, I'm going to do these and I'm definitely going to do either focused femoral nerve blocks or, um, or fascia iliaca blocks in young patients with, uh, with um, mid-shaft or distal femur fractures. Um, it's just it's a nice thing to do for them. And this is the indication that is the most supported by the literature compared to anything else we've gone through. We actually have meta-analyses that are looking at randomized controlled trials here. So this is like leaps and bounds from single case reports of some of these aforementioned indications. And what it's showed, what the literature has kind of borne out here is that by doing these blocks, you have an improvement in their pain control. So they have usually lower pain scores compared to traditional, which is usually IV opioids. And you also have decreased opioids. And occasionally the studies have demonstrated decreased side effects from opioids, although it seems that benefit is not as consistent. So there was a 2016 systematic review as well that was similar to that meta-analysis, and it showed that you're getting more pain control than opioid reduction, but still a lot of benefit. And Mike, you alluded to doing this in femur fractures. There was actually a Cochrane review using a femoral nerve block for femur fractures in children. At that time, there wasn't a whole lot of evidence for it, but they concluded that maybe there's benefit here. Keep in mind with this literature, though, because this has been going on for a while, some of the studies, and especially some of these meta-analyses, not all of those are done in the ED setting. Some of these are a grouped single-shot block plus a catheter. So you have to read these a little bit closely and recognize it's not always 
uh, an emergency physician or an acute care provider just putting in a block and then that's it. A lot of times they're grouped together with continued regional anesthesia. Good points, and I would um, I would add only that this block you're you're probably most prone to seeing what I'm going to describe, but uh, it can happen in any block. So if you have a patient who's gotten a bunch of um, typically opioid analgesics, sometimes somebody threw some benzodiazepines in too because they felt that you know maybe some of it was spasm or there was some anxiety component to the pain. Um, and you get involved in the case at that point, or at that point you're the same provider and you choose to do some regional, be really careful about respiratory depression in patients who are in a lot of pain, get a lot of potential respiratory depressants in the form of opioids and or benzodiazepines, and then you take away their pain with a regional technique. Um, because now they don't have that sympathetic drive of the pain to keep them awake. And the few times that I've seen complications from regional, that's probably been the the most common one is somebody tried a couple of different IV um, analgesic slash sedative techniques, didn't have a good result, and then tried regional and had an excellent result, but kind of too excellent um, and took away the painful stimulus. And then, and we've all seen this in procedural sedations where you're giving tons of sedation to get somebody asleep. And then you go ahead and reduce the shoulder or the hip or whatever else. And now all of a sudden you're doing a chin thrust and just waiting for them to, um, to kind of start breathing again because you've taken away that sympathetic drive. The other thing to mention about this is unlike any of the other blocks, the evidence here has shown that there is a longer term benefit even in some of these studies where not only did they show short term pain control, but even functional outcomes of these patients can be improved. And we covered one of the studies that demonstrated this on the podcast previously, and we'll link to that. But I think it may be that these patients are then able to participate in their therapy if they have better pain control, and they end up being able to to walk better, walk farther, and seem to do a lot better if their pain's controlled. So really promising. And like you said, it's important. Everyone should know how to do that. Okay, popliteal sciatic block. Do you use that one? So I used to use this one for um, sort of trimalleolar or bimalleolar ankle fracture dislocations, um, and it works well. Um, you can take somebody who comes in in, a, in an inflated or, or cardboard splint from EMS and just prop the leg up on some blankets still in a splint and go ahead and do this block, and, and it, it's, a, it's a useful technique. It works fine. Um, I really don't use this block much anymore um, for ankle fracture dislocations because I'm doing more intraarticular um, for uh, for trimalleolar, bimalleolar fracture dislocations and finding that it works really well. Um, so I'm uh, it's a useful block. I actually kind of like taking a popliteal approach to the tibial nerve now um, as opposed to going down towards the ankle and. Maybe we can talk about that if we're, yeah, it looks like we're going to cover posterior tibial too, so we can talk about that. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, it will get you, just in terms of innervation and, and being complete in the description, it gets you basically everything from the knee down with the exception of the skin over the cutaneous innervation over the medial uh, lower leg, ankle, and foot. So the saphenous nerve is a branch of the femoral nerve, so you'll miss that. But everything else below the knee, you'll, you'll get numb with a sciatic nerve block. And the evidence for this is just a few case reports, so not too much to see. And we're going to close with 
Another favorite of people digging things out of feet, the posterior tibial block. Yeah, this one is um, is such a high-yield emergency medicine block. I mean, anybody who's tried to dig a foreign body out of the foot or, um, you know, repair a plantar laceration, their refractory to local injection, um, you know, I always joke that this is like the one that gets you that flop sweat during your procedure where, like, you, the patient's miserable and you're miserable and the whole thing just stinks. If you're able to get them numb regionally, um, these turn into into really straightforward, uh, rewarding cases. Um, so calcaneal fractures, uh, sole of the foot, plantar foot lacerations, um, and foreign bodies in the sole of the foot. Um, those are the indications that I use this for. And um, you can go just proximal to the, um, the medial malleolus, um, a little bit higher, maybe three to four centimeters higher than that if you want calcaneal nerve uh, um, analgesia as well for calcaneal fractures. But um, I learned a tip from an anesthesiology buddy of mine that, um, that getting the popliteal, the tibial nerve um, just past the popliteal fossa after the split from the common fibular or peroneal nerve, you're within a sheath and the anesthetic just lasts longer and it's much less of a of sort of a regional infiltration of the nerve and much more of a, of a peripheral nerve block. Um, and it, just the, the duration of anesthesia is much longer. Um, so I like doing them up more proximally now. They work great doing them more distally. So again, as sort of an entry uh, level gateway drug block, um, I would say uh, it's a great place to get started because it's better than injecting the sole of the foot. You know, super high yield. This is something I would do a long acting anesthetic with though, because, you know, regardless of calcaneal fracture, laceration to the sole of the foot, or you digging in there for a foreign body, you know, it's going to hurt a lot for a while. Um, It's just a painful part of the body. And the evidence for this is, we're going to close it out with just case reports. It's a recurring theme. That's right. That's the theme. What a whirlwind going through however many blocks we did. Seemed like about 50. So let me try to summarize a little bit of all of the evidence we just reviewed. So for all of these, it seems feasible. It seems like if you know what you're doing with ultrasound and you know some regional anesthesia principles, you probably can do this, but recognize that these studies aren't big enough to show harm from rare complications, right? If you're just doing a case series of eight patients, we don't actually know how likely it's going to be that less experienced users especially might encounter some trouble. So don't try this unless you've got some training and you, and you know what you're doing. The most evidence was for interscaling and suprascapular blocks for shoulder dislocation and then the femoral and fascia iliaca compartment blocks for hip fractures. For the shoulder, it seems like this helps your length of stay less clear if it actually is superior pain relief or satisfaction compared to procedural sedation. For your hip, it definitely helps pain and reduces opioid use and there's potentially further benefits with that one as well. The last point to take home is that this is an area ripe for research, especially in the middle of the opioid epidemic. I think this is a really popular way for people to get really good pain control, and this is good for patients. This can help them out. So if you're not doing it, maybe it's something you should start learning. If you are doing it, maybe you should start studying it so we can have some good evidence that this is something we should start using. Mike, do you have any final thoughts on this? You did an amazing job putting together this research, and, and we've gone through a lot of it. The, I think the, the issue we're seeing here is not that regional doesn't work. 
I think the issue we're seeing here is that there's really, it's a challenging thing to study. There's a lot of co-founders, you know, confounding issues around um, other anesthetics or or analgesics that people receive in the ER um, when they're coming in with injuries. Um, It's a relatively new technique, um, just using ultrasound for regional in the ED. It's still only, you know, 10, 15 years old. I think it hasn't been studied well enough to show benefit in a lot of these cases. Classic uh, example of this, I think, would be superficial cervical plexus block. I, I've seen so much great relief from patients, um, whether it's clavicular fracture or it's uh, line placement associated discomfort. And I just think we don't have the evidence. So I wouldn't be discouraged from doing these blocks because the evidence isn't so great for many of them yet. I think it should, you know, hopefully inspire some some listeners to go design some some resident slash fellow slash attending level research and um, and start looking at these and seeing if we can show benefit. Now, don't be discouraged that you don't know how to do these or you had no clue what we were talking about. I'm going to include a lot of resources on the blog post associated with this. And that will have a document with all of the references we discussed, kind of divided by the indication and the block we were talking about, as well as links to some really helpful websites that you can find how to do these and see some more pictures. I will also just shout out to lipidrescue.org. If you are doing blocks, really helpful to know that because you can just type it in quick and there's instructions on what to do if you are encountering a last situation. So with that, I will thank all of the authors that participated in this research. It's really helpful to keep moving this forward because I think there are a lot of benefits that remain to be seen. And thank you, Mike, for joining me. It's been really great. You dropped a ton of pearls on this. So I really appreciate your time. It's been awesome being on. Thanks so much for asking. Of course. And thank you, the listener, for continuing to listen to our podcast. If you want to find out more, you can go to ultrasoundgel.org. You can check out our Facebook page or feel free to send us a message on Twitter. We look forward to hearing from you. And until then, we'll talk to you later. More pressure, more gel, 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 more